This is an ABC podcast. Hey, Joe Lauder with you for the Hack Podcast. I'm filling in for Dave Marchese over the next couple of days. You might have noticed that native Australian ingredients are booming at the moment, whether it's kakadu plum infused skincare or wattle seed cookies. It's been amazing to see more people getting into native ingredients and bush food. But who is really benefiting here? And as you'll hear, that money isn't always going back to local Aboriginal communities. Plus, last year, the former government was meant to release a major report into the state of the environment in Australia, but they kept it a secret till after the election. So stick around because we have a chat about what we can expect when that report is released in a couple of weeks. Hack. The bigger mining companies are really, really hesitant to spend money on, on mental health because they're worried about uh, what the outcome will be. On Triple J. Kalgoorlie is a big WA mining town that's created billions of dollars in revenue and opportunities, and yet it has the highest youth suicide rates in the state. There are only six mental health beds in the Goldfield regions for a population of 60,000, and none of those beds are for minors. And the community is begging for a youth mental health ward ASAP to prevent any future deaths. Western Australia's state budget had a $6 billion surplus this year, but no money for a new mental health unit in Kalgoorlie. The ABC's Sean Tariq Goodwin has been speaking to some families who've lost loved ones in the region, and they want to see something change. And just a warning, this story deals with some heavy issues and suicide. I can no longer count on my hands how many friends my age have lost their life to suicide. With their death, it feels like they became a number added to a tally, disgust for a day. That's Kalgoorlie local and one of Western Australia's youngest ever local councillors, Amy Astle. She's 20. She's speaking in WA Youth Parliament about a mental health crisis in the remote mining city. The youth suicide rate in the goldfields is significantly higher than the state average. Kalgoorlie Boulder on Wongatha Country in central WA is almost seven hours inland from Perth. It produces billions of dollars each year from nearby gold and nickel mines, the biggest of which sits just across the highway from the city's CBD. I had a chat with Amy at Mount Charlotte Lookout, where you can see across the whole community and the open pit mine. We have so much wealth that is, uh, you know, populated here in the goldfields, populated in regional WA from virtue of mining and the resources sector, but where is it going? She told me the goldfield suffers from one of the highest suicide rates in the country, with young people struggling most. Living in regional WA is already isolating on its own, but when you have a mental health issue out here, it's even more so. And the lack of appropriate services and accessible services for people is dire. I miss my nephew. I miss that great big smile. That's Ben Williams. He's sitting by the gravestone of his nephew Jordan, who died while an inpatient in the mental health unit in Kalgoorlie. He lost both his parents in the two previous years. The 20-year-old escaped from the mental health unit during an acute psychotic episode. The inquest into his death heard conditions in that unit were so poor, visiting health workers had vowed to never return. The inadequateness is with the hospital. If there was a proper facility here, Jordan wouldn't be dead now. The coroner's recommendations called for a new mental health unit to be built in Kalgoorlie as soon as possible, with resources for adequate staff. Despite a $6 billion surplus, there wasn't any money in the WA state budget for a new unit in Kalgoorlie. It makes you very angry. It makes you angry that there's people here who need it just as much as a person in the city. In the goldfields here especially, you know, 
we bust our house and we work. We create a lot of money for this country and yet we have the least of everything. Sharon Duffy agrees. She's also tried to get help for her son Bryce when he was struggling. He was suicidal and we needed help at the hospital, um, which was really hard because there's no child mental health beds at the hospital. So, you know, we just went home and had to deal with it ourselves and the family. Bryce passed away at the start of last year. There are just six inpatient mental health beds for the entire Goldfields area, which is more than three times the size of Victoria and has a population of almost 60,000. There are no beds for under-18s. Sharon Duffy has been advocating for the state government to change that. I think it would mean a lot to me. Just knowing that, you know, not as many families would have to go... Well, no families, hopefully, will have to go through um, what, what my family has and, you know, lose someone that they love. The WA Health Minister says she's considering the recommendations calling for a new mental health unit. But Amy Astle says she's worried more young people in the goldfields will be lost before action is taken. Young people here are screaming and asking for help. The evidence shows that the help that we're asking for is justified and I think that's when we see more issues arise as well, when they ask for help and they're ignored. Hack on Triple J. That report is from Sean Tariq Goodwin and if it's brought up any issues for you, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Now, joining me now is Dr Sky Kinder and she's a psychiatry registrar and a rural health advocate. Sky, we just heard there in that report that there's no youth acute beds in the Goldfields region in WA. How common is that in regional Australia? Yeah, thanks for having me, Joe. It's actually a, a really common problem nationally. Um, I'm based in Victoria and it's a problem that uh, we have in Victoria as well where uh, really access to uh, child and youth inpatient beds are restricted to the capital city in Melbourne. And, uh, you know, even, even in a state like ours that is far less geographically dispersed compared to Western Australia, we would still see young people travelling sometimes uh, up to seven hours to, to access one of these beds. Right, that must make it so hard for those families then that we just heard, making that decision about whether to travel hours away for care or try and do it alone. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, this is something that I've heard a lot, uh, you know, in in speaking with communities uh, is that, you know, it's not just the patient themselves that's often asking for help. It's often the family as well. And families, uh, you know, the the choice, uh, none of us would want to be in a position where we have to send our our young person, our adolescent uh, to a city many hours away or, or try to manage them ourselves, which is sometimes, uh, you know, uh, it's a rock and a hard place, isn't it? How do you, if, if you don't know what to, to do, how are you supposed to manage that on your own? Yeah, and then I imagine as well there's the issue of taking someone away from their hometown and their home environment to a capital city, then that would also be pretty detrimental that you have to take them out of their home environment to get that support. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the evidence is really clear that community supports are, you know, vital in helping people to recover from mental illness and in terms of actually maintaining their well-being over the longer term. So the fact that we have a, a system set up, and um, particularly for our young people, but for adults as well in, in regional and rural areas, where a lot of people are having to travel away from all of their existing supports, it's, it's just completely counter-therapeutic. We've just heard it about how Kalgoorlie produces billions of dollars a year, but they're not seeing any funding for more services. 
How much does the mental health system and mental health services need more funding across the country, but especially in regional areas? Yeah, well, I think uh, when the mental health system needed more funding before the pandemic, and as with many things in health post-pandemic, uh, you know, it's uh, even more difficult now for a lot of people to, to seek help. I've seen, you mentioned Lifeline before, you know, I've seen statistics saying that calls to Lifeline uh, in January of this year were up 16% compared to two years ago. And uh, I saw a statistic from Beyond Blue saying that they had calls um, that were up 27% from the same period two years ago. Uh, so, you know, we we know uh, that the need is there. And in fact, even before the pandemic, the Victorian Student Health and Wellbeing Survey, which is run in Victoria, um, surveying students in Victorian schools showed that 63% of students from rural and regional areas actually felt that they were unable to access the mental health services that they wanted when they needed them. And that was before the pandemic hit. So, so there's been a problem for a long time uh, and what we're seeing is an exacerbation of that now. And I imagine it's not just a matter of building these services and say like building an extra ward on a hospital, but you actually have to recruit staff and recruit staff to regional areas and have enough staff in the first place. That must also be a big challenge. Absolutely. So there's the physical infrastructure problem and, uh, you know, some areas are doing better than others when it comes to actually having the physical infrastructure in place. Um, Kalgoorlie obviously is an example where they don't have the physical infrastructure in place. But even once you have the physical infrastructure in place, workforce uh, is becoming more of a challenge, particularly with uh, the pandemic at the moment. What we're seeing uh, a lot of in Victoria, and I know this is true around the country as well, is that we have a really burnt out uh, mental health workforce. You know, it's a really uh, unique and and really unenviable position that, that our system's in at the moment where the people who are trying to, to support the mental health of patients are also actually going through a lot of mental health difficulties themselves. Uh, and for, for those reasons, among others, you know, people just being ready to take a break after two years on the front line, we've got a lot of shortages on a lot of our mental health inpatient wards. So even when the infrastructure is there and the wards available, what we're seeing even in capital cities at the moment is we don't actually necessarily have the nurses and doctors to staff the wards. Mm, and on the text line, Sarah says, this is just devastating. We need to look after our men, but it also starts with our boys. Teach them it's okay to cry and to feel. Too often we ask them to mask their feelings by saying, you're right, suck it up. It starts from day one. And Dr. Kinder, that kind of goes to that point. We've been talking about the need for more services and facilities and work, um, the workforce as well. But um, we really need to also be addressing these issues and the drivers of suicide and mental illness at a really young age in regional Australia as well, right? Absolutely, absolutely. I think the thing with mental health is it's not just a medical problem. And so we can't just look at it through a medical lens. You know, we, we all know there are so many things that contribute to our mental health and well-being. Uh, housing is a big one that comes up for young people a lot of the time. There's a lot of concerns from young people. And I know that this program has covered it previously before as well, where people are really feeling very uncertain about how they're going to get into the housing market. Um, and, and these sorts of uh, what we would call psychosocial challenges have big impacts on people's mental health and on their recovery. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Sky Kinder, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Joe, and for, for highlighting a really important topic. Absolutely. That's Dr. Sky Kinder, and she's a psychiatry registrar and a rural health advocate. And if that story brought up any issues for you, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. 
attack. If you learnt anything from the last election, you learnt that Australians are demanding more from the Australian government when it comes to the environment. On Triple J. If you've just tuned in, I'm Joe Lauder and I'm filling in for Dave Marchese on Hack for the next few days. Last week we told you how the previous federal government scrapped almost 180 plans that would help stop the extinction of threatened species here in Australia. Well, the government, the previous government also deliberately held out on releasing a major scientific report that happens once every five years. It's the State of the Environment Report. And yeah, it's the report card on how nature is going here in Australia. Today, the new Environment Minister, Tanya Plibersek, gave a bit of a teaser saying it's alarming and she said that she's going to be releasing it in the next few weeks. To find out a bit more about what we can expect from it, I've got the CEO of the Australian Conservation Foundation, Kelly O'Shaughnessy, with me. Kelly, thanks for coming on Hack again. G'day, Joe. Just to start with, how significant is the State of the Environment Report? Well, it only happens every five years and it tells us uh, I suppose what it says on the label, what the health of our environment is in in Australia. Uh, I'm, I, I think I know what it's going to tell us because uh, it's going to tell us what every other report in the last uh, few decades have told us, that the environment is in trouble um, and we're facing a real extinction crisis in this country because we're clearing trees, we're cutting down forests, we're, we're clearing away um, land and that's the home of our wildlife and everyone needs a home to live in. So that'll be the biggest thing it'll tell us that we're facing an extinction crisis and we've got a lot of work to do to protect the natural world that we all love. Right. Is deforestation really, um, is it the biggest issue that you're kind of expecting it to highlight in terms of the state of the environment here in Australia? Are there other big issues that we're expecting it um, to come out as well? Definitely deforestation is the number one cause of extinction, but climate change is is growing up the charts very fast there and Australia's most likely had the first um, animal in the world to go extinct from climate change. Um, it's a bramble K melanese that, that used to live uh, up in northern Queensland. Um, so it also say invasive species are a problem. Um, it will cover other issues that aren't as bigger issues like plastics in oceans um, but and, and things like air quality, which has actually shown that when you put your mind to it, and fix pollution that goes into our air, air and water, we can actually improve things in, in nature. But unfortunately, um, you know, business and agriculture has been allowed to just cut trees down um, really without much regulation for decades. And that's why we're facing the crisis we are today. Kelly, why do you think the previous government didn't release the State of the Environment report when they were expected to, which was late last year? I think Australians have cottoned on that the, the last government weren't very good on environmental issues or issues of climate action. Um, and so they didn't want to put this world, uh, report out which would um, tell Australians exactly the plight of our natural world. Uh, and I suppose they didn't want to have that conversation in the lead up to an election. But I th- really think that that underestimated how much Australians love nature. We love the creeks out the backyard, the beaches that we go and visit in summer, you know, the wildlife that we that we grow up with, like kangaroos and koalas snoozing in big old gum trees and my personal favourite, the warble of the um, magpie in the morning. So, you know, nature in Australia is what it means to be Australian you, and you can't sort of pull, pull that over... Australians, you've got to be honest with us and uh, we know there's a problem. We're up for fixing it uh, and the government didn't want to have that conversation, so hid the report. 
Yeah, last week we reported on how the former government also scrapped almost 180 recovery plans for threatened species and ecosystems, and that happened right before the election. It was one of the last things they did before the election. Um, How much of a setback is that, or is it actually easy for the new minister to reinstate them? Look, it is a big task for the new minister to reinstate those plans because they're based, they need money. We need money to invest in in rebuilding habitat, uh, regenerating habitat and protecting our wildlife. And unfortunately, the last government cut the environment budget by over 40% in its time in government. Um, And I know that the new government um, have allocated, you know, around a quarter of a billion dollars um, we are going to need one to two billion dollars a year to invest in the type of recovery need. So it is a long haul back, but we can do it because we know that we can protect habitat, we can have sustainable farming, uh, we can reduce um, climate pollution and still grow jobs in our economy. So this is not a, a battle between the environment and the economy and jobs. We can have all of those things if we're just smart about uh, how we go about living in the world. Was the challenge, not the challenge, but do you think um, the issue for the previous government was that these plans often come up against other plans for, say, certain developments or mining applications? Is that an example of kind of how these plans might might get in the way? Yeah, I think that there's a lot of ideology at play here. But what, what I was really excited about when we were working on what a new set of nature laws would look like in Australia, we worked really closely with the business community. And it turns out that we, we have a shared problem. We have laws that are really hard for businesses to use and laws that are failing to protect nature. But we work together to find solutions that could be good for uh, and expedite business decisions and business developments, but also importantly, protect nature. So I think that there were ideologies at play in the last government. There's a lot of money going into politics from the mining community, from fossil fuel communities. Um, And we've got to stop that because democracy should be, of course, for the people and not for the people with the most money. Um, But that that really, I think, was what was corrupting decision making in the past. I really hope that this is a new dawn for nature protection and climate action in Australia with our new parliament. And um, and I, I hope that they get on delivering the, the reforms that um, we already have worked on, that we've, we've given to the government, said, hey, do this, because the business community, environment community all believe that this will work to solve our shared problems. Um, just lastly, have you had a chance to meet with the new environment minister yet to speak about these issues? No, I haven't had a chance to meet with a new environment minister. I haven't met with a climate minister. I think she's still getting her feet under the desk. It's a new portfolio for her and it's a really big, important one. And I've got to be... I've got to say I'm so excited to have someone like Tanya Plibersek as the Environment Minister because she's got so much experience. This is a really big job, requires huge reform. They've got to form a new Environment Protection Authority at the national level that doesn't exist. So uh, I'll give her, um, you know, certainly a week or two to get her feet under the desk and then I'd love to get in there and um, start protecting Australian nature. It's great to hear from you. Thank you so much, Kelly. Thanks, Joe. That's Kelly O'Shaughnessy, and she's the CEO of the Australian Conservation Foundation. Hack. You know, we often say, look, our DNA is in those plants because, you know, we've been sharing this earth with those plants for thousands of years. On Triple Jack. Yeah, if you're taking yourself out for a nice dinner or maybe you're buying some fancy skincare, you might have noticed some ingredients that are really popular at the moment. Things like kakadu plums or finger limes or wattle seed. They're all super trendy and selling these ingredients is really lucrative. 
Our native ingredients industry is thriving, but it doesn't have a whole lot of regulation and that has a lot of Indigenous Australians who work in the industry worried about cultural insensitivity and exploitation. Ellie Grounds reports. These women, they're the first farmers. We had systems in place. We had our way of harvesting on country and and, uh, making sure the country was looked after, making sure that um, there was enough seed left for the birds and the animals. Raylene Brown loves using Australia's native ingredients. She runs a bush foods and catering business in Mabantwa, Alice Springs, and is stoked that the food our First Nations people have been harvesting and eating for thousands of years is being shared with the world. Well, Raylene, can you tell us about what you've brought in today? Because it looks incredible. I've been busy harvesting. (laughs) (laughs) And today I've brought in um, some beautiful warrigal greens, some old man salt bush that grows everywhere around the central desert here. We've got some beautiful wattle seeds, some different varieties, and we've also got some bush tomatoes. Oh, wow. Yeah, if you're a MasterChef fan, you may have actually seen Raylene on TV before. Lots of high-profile restaurants and chefs are really into using native ingredients, including MasterChef judge Joxon Frillo, who's from Scotland. Learning about Indigenous cultures is... is it, it certainly has changed me as a chef, but more importantly, I think it's changed me as a person. Raylene reckons when she was younger, she was really optimistic about sharing the food part of her culture. But she pretty quickly realised her idea of how the bush tucker industry worked wasn't really accurate. And when I started finding out a bit more about the pricing of products, the knowledge that our people had around what, how their, their raw materials were being used, and what was the end game for our people? Where, where were we benefiting out of it? Um, we were at the bottom of the rung. Raylene is the chair of the First Nations Bush Food and Botanical Alliance Australia, which was formed to deal with a bunch of things that are a bit dodgy in our native ingredients industry. Things like Indigenous growers not getting paid properly or at all for their harvest, or the fact there's no proper regulation or oversight to make sure companies which look like they're Indigenous owned and operated actually are. I think about 2% of the native food industry is actually Aboriginal led and controlled and about 98% is non-Indigenous led. Michael Manicus is the co-founder of an Indigenous private equity firm that runs a company called The Dreaming Food Group, which is a member of the Alliance. He reckons the native ingredients industry is rife with non-Indigenous growers, and a lot of them aren't too keen on talking about their businesses. Some of them are very secretive about where those plantations are, which we can only assume they've probably not started their plantation from the right basis in terms of dealing with the traditional owners of the local area or the the gatekeepers of of that product. Um, There is story still today of theft of fruit and seeds from traditional owners' lands that they know is going off um, to potentially overseas. He says right now companies using native ingredients don't have to let customers know where they were grown or if traditional owners were consulted in the growing or harvesting process. An example, Woolies make um, lemon myrtle roast chickens in my local Woolies supermarket, which are amazing. We don't know where the lemon myrtle is local or where it's coming from plantations in Malaysia. There's no requirement to disclose that. And Raylene reckons one of the dodgiest things happening is that Indigenous growers aren't getting paid properly for what is seriously hard work. And I know of many women who have toiled on land and just all by hand harvesting, going out with the um, belief that they would be paid for their product. 
a dear friend of mine, um, yeah, basically was broken because of it. You know, she in debt for up to nearly eighty to a hundred thousand dollars. She went out and harvested with her family on country. They didn't pay her for nearly five years. Eventually, a group of women banded together and got a lawyer who sent a letter to that buyer, and Raylene's friend did end up getting paid. This is our knowledge. You know, we often say, look, our DNA is in those plants because. You know, we've been sharing this earth with those plants for thousands of years. Dale Tilbrook has also built a career out of sharing bush tucker with the world. She's a Wardandi Bibbulmun woman from WA's Margaret River area. There's a sacred tree in that part of the country called the Mudja tree, and it's especially important to the Noongar people, who believe it embodies the spirits of their ancestors. In our tradition, it's the leaves where the souls of the dead will rest. But the whole tree is sacred to no We grow up knowing that. But earlier this year, there was a huge uproar when two distilleries in WA used it in their gins. And Dale says that made it very clear there needs to be better engagement with traditional owners by people who want to use native ingredients. It's easy to think, well, it's food and it's been here for thousands upon thousands of years, so why can't we use it? Why can't we eat it? And on one hand, you know, that's fine. Yes, we should. But I guess on the other hand, we have to make sure the sacred is not attached in any way to these plants. Dale, Raylene and Michael all reckon there is space for non-Indigenous Australians to work in the native ingredients industry. But they want it done right, with proper consultation and proper payment. You know, we want to work towards the future together. But I think it's fair to say that most Aboriginal people would like to think that non-Aboriginal people would be reaching out more to Aboriginal people to work together and to make sure that benefits are passed on. Hack on Triple J. Ellie Grounds reporting there. To chat more about this, I've got Pat Torres with me, and she's the CEO of My Harvests, which is a supplier of Australian native foods. Pat, thanks so much for joining me. Just to start with, for someone that hasn't had one before, what does a kakadu plum taste like? What makes it so special? It tastes a bit like um, pear and apple combined, but within the environment, there are those special ones that's really sweet. So we know where they are and we go there first if we want to have a feed of it. Yeah, nice. What made you decide <laughs> to start a business where you share your culture and food with people? Well, uh, originally I was trained as an educator, so I've always had an education focus in the past. But when we were on uh, CDP, which is like working for the doll, we had to look for a business. And so because I was on my own family lands that had lots and lots of bush foods around us, I thought I could go and develop a business in bush foods, which is basically harvesting um, native plants from our lands, traditional lands, and then creating value-added products from it. Yeah, and how does it make you feel seeing that these native ingredients are getting um, you know, so much more popular and also being sold for a premium? Like there's clearly a market there for them. Yeah, it's, it's great to have, you know, like a market for the sale of um, Australian native foods, but there should be a right of um, like a protocol, which what we consider as Indigenous people. And that is, if it's an Indigenous plant from Australia, then obviously there are people around who, who have a heritage uh, benefit and an economic benefit from using those plants. So we, you know, being utilising bush tucker, um, in, in my case, plant foods, we 
want to be recognized as the custodians of that particular plant. For example, my Aboriginal name is Mummagen, and Mummagen is what they call Mimisops elengi, which is a forest, rainforest fruit. And so that plant is connected me through my name, and I was named that because my aunt gave me that particular name. In traditional times, I would have been the boss for that plant, and if anyone wanted to collect it, harvest it, use it in any way, our protocol is that you approach the people who is it connected to. So what has happened in mm -hmm. the past, I think, with the ag industry is that um, people have not realised or recognised or acknowledged that Aboriginal people have a direct connection to these plants and that it was our ancestors who created those plants. So the plants didn't just arrive, you know, on the land. Our ancestors managed the land and the waters to encourage specific growth of specific plants and animals and was our um, agricultural practices that made sure that that ecosystem appears as it is, you know, now. Yeah, and thousands and thousands of years of our people managing the lands and waters that have created the environment that Australians today enjoy. And just quickly, it sounds like you're saying that there is a place for non-Indigenous people to work in this industry, but it's just about doing it in the right and respect, respectful way. Exactly. And one of the rightful, respectful way is to seek Indigenous people involvement in the industry that you're involved in. So we want the bush food industry to be Indigenous led because we are intricately connected to it. We have ancient stories and many traditional people today who practice their culture and law um, in their communities. There are dances, there are rituals, there are ceremonies, there are body markings. All of that stuff relate to particular plants and the environment. So that is part of our ownership of our personal property and cultural property. And those things in, in Australian law, you know, they yeah. recognise property rights. So why can't our property rights be recognised as well? Hack on Triple J. That's all we had time for, but it's such a fascinating chat. Thanks so much for sticking around. I'll catch you tomorrow. This is an ABC podcast.